This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Air Force is in the midst of a serious child care shortage. A new report obtained by Federal News Network finds thousands of children are waiting months to get services. Federal News Network Scott Massioni joins me with the latest. And Scott, where did this report come from and how dire is the situation? Well, this is a report that's from the Air Force to Congress for 2020, and it's really just a uh, an update of where their child care services are in, in the current age. And as of February 2021, there were more than 5,100 children without child care at that moment. Now, the average waiting time was 150 days. Now, that's just an average. In some places uh, across the country, it was nearly a year. I'm talking like 300 days just to get the, the services they need. In fact, in Anacostia Bowling was one of the, uh, the ones that had longer periods. Now, the bulk of these are under five years old, these children that don't have the services that they need. So uh, a serious problem for airmen, especially in a time when uh, you know, child care is really needed. Yeah, this all ties into so many Air Force issues, retention, having quality family life, the ability of spouses to make a living. I mean, they all kind of have child care in common in in many ways. And like you say, at Anacostia Bowling, you can't send the kids to go play by the river. So what does this all mean for the airmen? Well, that means that they have to go to outside sources for the child care that they need that's supposed to be uh, given to them to through the Defense Department. Uh, the problem with that is that it's extremely expensive. And when I say extremely expensive, I mean, it's like paying another rent sometimes to go to these child care, um, you know, outside child care places. Now, some pro- there are some programs for airmen out there that can help with the reimbursement of childcare costs, but you have to apply to them. You have to collect all the supporting documents. There's a cap on how much you can get. And then finally you're being reimbursed. So you're still paying the money up front. And for you know a sergeant or a private who really isn't paying, getting paid a lot of money, it's hard to just give that $2,000 a month up front and then wait to be reimbursed again. Sure, like you say, it's like paying rent again. And so what's making this so bad? Why can't the Air Force get the services it needs in place at the various locations? There's, there's a couple of factors that go into this. One is that it's just worse because of COVID-19, and they've uh, admitted that in the report. The reason of that is because some of the CDC centers, CDC meaning Child Development Centers, had to close because of the uh, of COVID-19. Some have uh, limited capacity, and then other times they were closing and then opening again, depending on the health protection status of each base. So, you know, there was just this weird patchwork of uh, CDCs that were closed and open and then, you know, having to change statuses, like I said. Uh, But, you know, outside of that, it's an ongoing problem, not just in the Air Force, but in the military as a whole and in the the private sector as a whole as well. There's just a shortage of child care within the military. It's, It's I'm sorry, within the whole nation itself. Childcare costs, like we said, are extremely expensive. There's a shortage of providers and staff. And then on top of that, when it comes to getting military providers, they need that extra security clearance or extra part of their background check to make sure that they can get onto a military installation. So uh, it's it's really just a, a tough situation all around uh, for everyone in the nation. We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Mossione, and has Congress responded in any way yet? They have. Well, earlier this week they had a hearing, and it was mostly just on the Air Force quality of life. But uh, they found they certainly talked about this issue a lot, and as you can expect, they are not happy 
What they want right now is further info from the Air Force. They're expecting a larger report on this issue. And then that they're hoping that the Air Force will put more money into childcare. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's the uh, chair of the subcommittee on military construction within the larger appropriations committee, she basically told the Air Force that if this budget that's coming out this Friday doesn't have more money in it for childcare, that they need to go back and make sure that it does because it's just something that's been neglected in the past. And in the meantime, is the Air Force itself doing anything? Right now, there's 222 uh, CDC centers that the Air Force has and are currently operational. They have a $20 million from 2020 that appropriations bill that they are using to expand a handful of the centers. And then they're using another $11 million to build a few more. And they have four more that's on their wish list for when possibly they get some more money thrown their way or if Congress has some sort of supplemental or something like that. So they are working to expand the amount of child care that they have, but it takes time to build these centers, and then these centers might not be enough. And then also it only goes in one area, right? You can't add one more CDC for every single base. You know, there's just one CDC per base, and that can only help that area. So it's a little bit of a predicament that they're in. And do we know anything about any of the other armed services? Are they having similar problems? Yes, it, it, this is a problem uh, throughout the whole uh, military. The Army is really trying to get on top of this as well. It also has a serious shortage. And, you know, it, if you remember in the beginning of COVID, this was a huge problem for first responders because the CDCs were completely closed. And then they didn't have anywhere to, to put their children as they were trying to go out and really save people's lives. Let's hope they get that one resolved. And in a completely different domain, Scott, you're writing about the declassification or the urging that DOD not get so overbearing on classification of documents. And there's some developments there. Formers are saying, hey, guys, lighten up a little bit here. What's going on? That's right. Well, you know, earlier this year, we had a letter that came from nine of the 11 combatant commanders say that they're saying that there's too much classification, that they, things need to be declassified more so that they can work easier with their allies and also with industry. Now we have uh, two more space and intelligence community uh, people saying the exact same thing. Uh, one of the leaders in the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and the uh, vice chief of space operations this week both said that, that, that exact same thing. Things are classified too much, and it's a vestige of the Cold War when we were using all of these exquisite technologies that if they got stolen would really put the United States in a bad situation. Now, what they're trying to do is work with private industry and uh, let them create all these really cool, uh, you know, exciting new technologies and then use that uh, for the military. But in order to do that, the military needs to share some of its secrets, share what it needs from these these companies. And right now they just really can't do that because uh, things are just too closed off. And so they're recommending what, a new standard for classifying? I mean, you have to have some kind of measurement against which to place a document and say yes or no. And it sounds like they're looking for new standards. Exactly. They're looking for new standards, and they're also trying to work within the the confines of what they've been working with. Uh, One of the things that they did praise is a couple of reports that came out of the Defense uh, Intelligence Agency, uh, which said basically it was more candid than things usually would be, but they were also um, really used some some tactics that worked around the classifications in in, uh, maybe – saying saying the way they were saying things um you know outside of that they are asking dod to work on some policies that may declassify some of the top higher level things and um within that they have they have been working on it and they're planning on on doing that sometime in the near future and you have to wonder if as a practical matter anything that is designated 
classified that is somewhere on a computer system. You wonder if China doesn't have it anyway. That's right. And, you know, we've found that the F-35, you know, some of China's uh, airplanes look very similar to some of the technology they have there. And it's not only frustrating for, you know, companies and and things like that, but it's also frustrating for the public as well, which wants to know where their tax dollars are going and how they're being used. Federal News Network's Scott Mossione. Thanks so much. Thank you. Check out both of his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. 
And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision, and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. 
not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.